There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. everyone, we begin the readout tonight with a momentous time for our country. One hour from now, President Biden will deliver his first primetime address to the American people. We've just learned that he will flag two very important upcoming dates. By May 1st, less than two months from now, he's directing all states and territories to make all adults eligible for the vaccine. You'll also want to mark July 4th on your calendar. Biden is expected to announce tonight that Americans should be able to gather in small groups by then. Two dates to look forward to, as today marks one year since the World Health Organization officially declared the coronavirus to be a pandemic. It's a sobering milestone, with more than half a million American lives lost between that declaration and tonight. And even with Biden's hopeful announcement, tonight is one of those occasions when it is important to step back and remember how we got here. Starting one year ago today, March 11th, 2020, when the world stood still. All right, so just moments ago on Capitol Hill, government health officials testified on the government's response to coronavirus. And this statement from one of the nation's top medical experts was not reassuring. We will see more cases and things will get worse than they are right now. There are now more than 1,000 cases reported in this country, and so far, 30 deaths. The World Health Organization has officially declared the coronavirus to be a global pandemic. Cases spiking. More market stress, more liquidity stress. Be careful out there is is what I tell people. The market tumbling. Dow is down more than 5% today, officially entering a bear market. Fear on Wall Street and Main Street. The Dow dropping more than 1,400 points, its second biggest point loss ever. Late this afternoon, the NCAA announced that it will hold March Madness without rowdy fans. This is an NBC News special report. We're interrupting our regular programming to bring you remarks from President Trump on the coronavirus outbreak, now a pandemic. To keep new cases from entering our shores, we will be suspending all travel from Europe to the United States for the next 30 days. Moments ago, Rudy Gobert of the Utah Jazz testing positive for COVID-19, the coronavirus. As a result, the NBA will suspend play. The league will go on a hiatus following the conclusion of action tonight. Academy Award-winning actor Tom Hanks and his wife, the actress Rita Wilson, have announced that they have both tested positive for coronavirus. That's a real face now. That uh, Tom and Rita Hanks is, is a real thing, a real fact for Americans to consider. If it can happen to them, uh, even right. though they are in Australia, uh, it can absolutely happen to anyone. I think that's a reality now uh, through Tom Hanks that a lot of people might not have had. That day changed everything. It all just happened at once. 
Those of us who are privileged stop going into the office, unlike the many essential workers who didn't have that option. We started talking about flattening the curve and social distancing. We were told we had 15 days to stay at home and slow the spread, days that stretched into months. Schools went virtual, and many students still haven't gone back. Stay-at-home orders that started in only a few states quickly became the norm across the country. The president at that time was still downplaying the virus and giving himself an A-plus for his response. We now know he was very much aware of how bad the situation really was. And we were told by experts that we didn't need to wear masks, something almost unfathomable to think about now. As healthcare workers struggled to obtain the equipment they needed and to deal with the mass casualties they were experiencing. And while there hasn't been anything quite like those initial few weeks, for many of us, this pandemic life of social distancing and mask wearing has become our new normal. One year later, we're still in it, with more than 29 million people having been infected and more than 530,000 dead. Let's turn now to critical care pulmonologist Dr. Vin Gupta and Jason Johnson, professor of politics and journalism at Morgan State University. Um, two of the people we most wanted to talk to tonight that I most wanted to talk to tonight. So thank you both for making time. Um, you know, Dr. Gupta, let me play for you what Dr. Fauci actually said today. He was on the Today Show and, and he talked about probably the most dangerous thing that happened over the last year. We had such divisiveness in our country that even simple common sense public health measures took on a political connotation. When people, you know, if you wanted to wear a mask, you were on this side. If you wanted to stay in and avoid congregate settings, you were on this side. It wasn't a pure public health approach. Mixed messages were coming from Washington, that's for sure. Um, you know, Dr. Gupta, I mean, it's fair to say, look, I remember the politicization even around Ebola. Um, you know, when President Obama was president and, and Republicans tried to somehow find a way to use that against him politically. But Ebola killed three people in the United States. It killed a lot more on the African continent. We're talking about something that wound up killing a half a million people plus. Have you ever experienced anything in the public health sector like this, where something like a virus that doesn't care who anyone is becomes a political matter and that leads to death? You know, Joe, I haven't. Um, it's good to see you, by the way. Good evening. I, w what I'll say is it, it, there's, a, there's a few things here. There's a deep irony, number one, that this took the journey it took, that everything got politicized. Because if we had just done, if, you know, unfortunately, former President Trump knew this was an airborne virus on, I believe it was what, February 7th. If we had put into place the measures that anybody otherwise would on learning that knowledge, then if there was a tactical shutdown at that point, if the strategic national stockpile had been replenished, if we knew what we knew now about this virus, if those had actually been, if that had, information was used to inform actual public policy, this would have been less of an issue. We probably, some estimates say, we would have saved 70% of the lives now lost. Imagine that, Joy. I mean, imagine that. So number it's, one, it's, it's ironic. Yeah, well, it's ironic because... It got it got politicized, and it ended up obviously becoming a big, pro a much bigger problem for the former president than it needed to be. And number two, I'll quickly say to your question: Is there precedence for this? You know, the biggest precedence I would say for politics and being injected into public health is, for example, what big lobbies do when they want to get their way. The smoking lobby, for example, smoking still is the biggest killer of people worldwide, in part because the smoking lobby, the tobacco lobby, is still quite powerful and continues to deceive. That's probably the biggest, uh, the, uh, the, 
the most pertinent analogy here, even though it's imperfect. Yeah, it, it, it is a good analogy. And, you know, speaking of it becoming a big problem for the former president, Jason Johnson, usually the easiest things for a president to run for reelection are on um, our war and tax cuts. <laughs> you know, those two things are usually surefire winners politically. Donald Trump was sitting on this crisis in which he could have shown himself to be a leader. This was breaking around the time of impeachment. He needed another story. So he had an opportunity to have another story. I just want to play. This is a little long, so just have patience with us. And we normally don't like to really play him, to be honest with you. But we're going to play him tonight. And this was <laughs> this was Donald Trump's incoherent, speaking of mixed messages, message on COVID. Are the words about a pandemic at this point? No, we're not at all. And uh, we're we have it totally under control. The risk to the American people remains very low because, you know, this virus is going to disappear. It's going to disappear one day. It's like a miracle. It will disappear. This is a flu. This is like a flu. It will go away. You know, it. you know, it is going away. As an example, on the masks, if people wanted to wear them, they can. I just don't want to wear one myself. It's a recommendation. This is going to go away without a vaccine. Hydroxy hydroxychloroquine. You're not going to die from this pill. And then I see the disinfectant. Is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or or almost a cleaning? You know, our doctors get more money if somebody dies from COVID. You know that, right? The minimum number was 100,000 lives, and I think we'll be substantially under that number. And just one more, if we, if we can stand, if y'all can stand and bear with me for like 17 more seconds. Here he is talking to Bob Woodward. He called Bob Woodward and said this to him. It's a very tricky situation. It's, uh, Indeed it, goes, it, it goes through air, Bob. That's always tougher than the touch. You just breathe the air and that's how it's uh, passed. Uh, it's also more deadly than your, you know, your, even your strenuous flus. I mean, just for as a political science matter, Jason, isn't is this the biggest blunder, public communications blunder by a president? I guess since Woodrow Wilson basically did the same thing with the so-called Spanish flu. Yeah, and, and I've written a lot about the similarities between uh, Trump and Wilson. They were both white supremacists. One just happens to be a lot smarter. That was Wilson. Um, the, the political consequences of this have been horrific. First off, half a million people are dead. Most of us have never experienced that in our lifetimes. It's bigger than multiple wars combined. Uh, and it's resulted in such a breakdown of so many fundamental things in the American economy and healthcare. It has left us a broken and less functional country. And, and as of right now, we still have so many different states that are refusing to follow the basic rules because of what Trump did last year. You have Florida that's fudging the numbers because they won't listen to the CDC, other places that are opening themselves up. But I would say, Joy, that the one political consequence that can't be avoided in all of this is that COVID is the reason that Donald Trump lost. Had he even remotely cared about handling this crisis last year, had he not tried to pick and choose and assumed that it was only going to be a blue state problem, had he not stood against masks and simply said, hey, do what you want, he would probably still be president of the United States today. It was Donald Trump's failure to address this horrible human, human rights, human health crisis that led to a lot of people saying, we can't have this anymore and kicking him out of the office. Wasn't the racism, wasn't the bigotry, wasn't the corruption, wasn't the cheating, it was COVID. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, that is hard to argue against. Um, so let's turn the page a little bit. Let's turn the page. So Dr. Gupta, you, I will admit on TV that you are the person who single-handedly uh, made me get over my nervousness about the vaccines and become determined to 
get vaccinated and to promote and push to everybody get vaccinated. I'm, I'm not yet. You know, haven't, I haven't gotten my, my my group hasn't come through yet, but I'm determined to do it now. And because of you, I'm determined to get whichever one I can. You know, I'm not I don't have like the J&J issues and everything. But can let's talk about these deadlines that um, that uh, President Biden has put up. May 1st, everyone being able to get the vaccine. Is that the kind of good, positive messaging that helps? Or is that going to are, are you worried that, that might cause just a rush on the vaccines on May 1st, starting on May 1st? I, I think I think it's overwhelmingly positive because people are really clamoring to get access because they know now because it's, because they know CDC guidance is is phasing in normalcy if you're vaccinated, right? And, you know, they started uh, small. They're going to go bigger as more people get vaccinated. But people are recognizing, connecting the dots. If I get vaccinated, that means I can plan summer vacation. That means holidays are going to be normal again. So it's good that they're moving up the, t- the, t- the time schedule. And I think, you know, we have our muscle memory now in place, Joy. We know how to do this in more zip codes across the country, these mass vac sites. So I think, I mean, it's a wonderful news for all of us. And I'm really glad. Thank you. I'll just quickly yeah. say thank you for bringing up the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Too many people out there think it's inferior. It's not. You only get a vaccine to keep yourself out of the hospital. It's 100% effective at keeping yeah. you out of the hospital. Oh, I'll take any of them. I mean, trust me. Uh, but real quick before I let you go, I- am I crazy to still be very nervous? Even if I finally get it, I get my J&J or whatever, I'd still be a little nervous, honestly, to do anything on July 4th and, and go in, do anything indoors in a gym or anything. I'd still be scared. Am I right to still be nervous after vaccination? So you should be reassured that you're never going to, you're not going to end up in the hospital. I think it's, I think it's appropriate that we're going to still have some residual trauma, if you will, from what's just happened the last 16 months. So yes, I do think people can continue to, to mask and distance, but caution for the rest of this year, frankly, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's how most people decide to live their life cautiously. And so, no, I don't think that's wrong at all. Yeah. Yeah, I'm keeping my mask and I've made them fashion, so I will be wearing my mask for the time <laughs> being in the near future. Dr. Vin Gupta, thank you, my, my counselor who doesn't even know that I'm, he's my counselor uh, on COVID things. And uh, Jason Johnson, thank you very much, my friend. Appreciate you. And up next on The Readout, We await President Biden's speech at the top of the hour, just before he hits the road, to promote the details of his sweeping plan across the nation. Meanwhile, over on Fox, Tucker Carlson is attacking pregnant women serving our country, saying that they are making, quote, a mockery of the U.S. military. The men and women of the armed forces quickly put Tucker in his place. Let's remember that those opinions were made by an individual who has never served a day in his life, at the Pentagon, spokesman John Kirby, I mean, Tucker Carlson's never served a day in his life, saying that Tucker demeans the entire U.S. military. And Nikki Foster tweeted, I have 217 combat flying missions over Iraq and Afghanistan. There are badass women all over this nation that have sacrificed more than your narrow mind can fathom. Tucker, your toxic masculinity would make you easily the absolute worst on any other night. But tonight, believe it or not, we found someone even worse than you. The big reveal is coming up. The readout continues after this. America, help is on the way. Now that the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan has been signed, Americans can expect some relief and some money in their accounts as early as this weekend. Here's President Biden moments before signing the bill. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera 
Well, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. We're happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. This historic legislation is about rebuilding the backbone of this country and giving people in this nation, working people, middle-class folks, uh, People who built the country a fighting chance. That's what the essence of it is. Biden has vowed not to repeat the mistake President Obama made back in 2009 when the administration did not get out and sell the benefits of its own economic republic plan, uh, economic recovery plan. So much of the public was just left not fully informed about the benefits. Barack was so modest, he didn't want to take, as he said, a victory lap. I kept saying, tell people what we did so we don't have time. Not going to take a victory lap. And we paid a price for it, ironically, for that humility. Each piece isn't just defensible. It is urgent and overwhelmingly supported by the people. It's good policy and it's good politics. Well, with that in mind, the White House has planned an aggressive marketing push to tout the specific benefits state by state of the already popular and transformative package. It begins with Biden's address to the nation coming up at the top of the hour, followed by a national tour next week with administration officials crisscrossing the country. President Biden and Vice President Harris will end the tour in Atlanta, which just let's be clear, made this bill possible by electing two Democratic senators in January. So it's fitting that it will be the choice for their first joint event outside of Washington since the inauguration. Friendly reminder, zero Republicans supported this wildly popular bill, but that didn't stop them from trying to take credit for some of it. Hours after passage, Mississippi Senator Roger Wicker was promoting a portion of the bill that sends cash to restaurants. Fittingly enough, he left out the part about him, like, actually voting against it. And if that wasn't bad enough, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell tried to plant the Republican flag on the country's recovery. Senate Republicans led the bipartisan CARES Act that got our country through the last year. The American people already built a parade that's been marching toward victory. Democrats just want to sprint in front of the parade and claim credit. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi had a good word for the Republicans who are playing hanger on. It's remarkable legislation. Unfortunately, Republicans, as I say, you know, vote no and take the dough. You see already some of them claiming, oh, this is a good thing or that's a good thing, but they couldn't give it a vote. But anyway, enough of them. Joining me now is Senator Chris Coons of Delaware. Vote no and take the dough. Um, you know um, President Biden probably better than anyone in the United States Senate. Um, what, what, do you, what do you expect his demeanor to be like tonight? I mean, he said, you know, that they made a mistake in 2009 when they didn't get out there and um, toot their own horn. Um, is he going to do a little bit of that tonight, you think? Well, Joy, since Joe Biden won the election to become our president, um, he has been relentlessly focused on getting us out of this pandemic, 
on relieving the burdens on middle Americans and on moving us forward. I think he will be somber as we reflect on what the one-year anniversary means of this pandemic, what it means to have lost 530,000 Americans. But I also think he'll be hopeful because we are now clearly on a path towards getting out of this pandemic and towards recovery. This $1.9 trillion bill that he just signed into law is truly a big deal. And it's going to deliver relief to 100 million American families in the means of direct stimulus checks. It's going to be the biggest anti-poverty program in decades by expanding the child tax credit. And it's going to put money into the Veterans Administration, into helping people stay in their homes or apartments, into safely reopening schools, into more small business lending. Joy, this bill is going to do a lot of good. And Joe Biden ran for president so he could help the American middle class and help get us out of the mess that Donald Trump got us into. I expect him to really give us a clear shot of hope about our future. Uh, Speaker Pelosi talked about the Republicans vote no and take the dough. Let me, let me play you. I normally don't like to play senators or other senators, but let me play Roger Wicker <laughs> basically doing that. <laughs> One good provision in a $1.9 trillion bill doesn't mean I have to vote for the whole thing. But I goes without saying. I've issued a statement, but, but I think it's a, it's a stupid question. Stupid question? Absolutely. I mean, I'm look, not going to vote for $1.9 trillion just because it as a couple of good provisions. First of all, there are no stupid questions, Mr. Wicker. Um, 62 percent of Americans approve of how Biden is handling the pandemic, according to a new NPR PBS poll, like 70 something percent approve of uh, of this um, recovery bill. Do you are, are Democrats, in your view, prepared to run against is the, is the Democratic Senate Congressional Committee prepared to run ads against people like Roger Wicker, who voted no and took the dough? Well, Joy, I think it's important that we remind all Americans that a year ago, we did come together on a bipartisan basis and unanimously passed the CARES Act because we saw the crisis that was this pandemic. And a year later, while we still have a raging pandemic, while we're still in a recession, while we've still got 11 million Americans collecting unemployment and looking for their next job, while we've still got tens of millions of Americans with their kids not in school and facing eviction, we couldn't get a single Republican vote. I'm not sure what changed. Seems to me that we're not out of this pandemic yet. We're not out of the woods yet. Uh, and so I would expect that there's going to be some uh, accountability politically for those who refuse to help finish the job and get us out of this pandemic. There was investment in developing the vaccines. That was bipartisan. There was investment in the initial response. That was bipartisan. But we're not out of the woods. So why did they leave the American people behind by refusing to vote for this bill, the first big bill of Joe Biden's presidency? Well, you know, respectfully, I think that, you know, maybe people in elected office in Washington and people in the media, frankly, care more about bipartisanship as a thing than actual people. People care about results. People care about getting the things they voted for. This is <laughs> results, people's they tax do. money. And they need a little bit of it back right now. And I don't think they care that it's bipartisan. And, and I say that to say, sir, that there are a bunch of other things that people really deeply care about. You know, voting rights are being stripped from Americans all over this country. There's a bill for that that's already passed the House. Um, policing, you know, we have the Derek Chauvin trial that's about to happen. You know, people really want reforms in policing. There's a bill for that. There are a bunch of bills um, that have, the, there's a For the People Act. There are bills on making it easier to vote. There's the George Floyd Act. There's the, the Voting Rights Act named after John Lewis. Is it, is it, is it okay 
for people like Joe Manchin to demand bipartisanship instead of results and to say they won't touch the filibuster. Richard Trumka, the AFCLCIO president, just came out today and called the filibuster a Jim Crow artifact and a creature of white supremacy. Are Democrats prepared to get Joe Manchin in line and reform the filibuster so that you guys can pass the other things people need? Well, Joy, at this point, we have several Democrats who said they will not touch the filibuster. It's not just Joe Manchin. And one of our challenges is delivering urgent relief that Americans need. That's what this bill is going to do. I wait, do sir, expect us to take up and pass another big, bold yeah. package. Yeah. Yes. Sure. But I mean, but the thing is, is that a bunch of Democrats I, I do think you're going to see us deliver more relief later this year. Reason? Yeah. Uh huh. Sorry. I'm sorry, Joy. No, sorry, there was a delay, but go ahead. Um, I do expect I us lost. to take up and pass another big and bold package that will address uh, infrastructure and jobs and climate. Uh, and I know that over the next couple of months, there will be some hard conversations in our caucus about what's the right path forward, about whether we're going to stand by and see all of Joe Biden's agenda stymied or whether we will make changes. Um, I'm going to be a part of that discussion. I'm not ready to get rid of the filibuster yet. I'm going to give a hard try at bipartisanship. That's Joe Biden's position as president. That's my position as a senator and many others. But frankly, Joy, we Latin have to make progress and we have to deliver on the results the American people are looking for. And that's going to be a, a subject of a lot of debate in our caucus this year. I'm sure. And my last question, and we are out of time, but, you know, the $15 an hour minimum wage is another one of those issues that's really important to people. I know that you are not for it at the moment and voted against it. But is that something that is a tenable position for a Democrat when Democrats have power and can make these changes for people but are hanging on to the filibuster for what? To empower Republicans? Let's be clear, Joy. I support raising the minimum wage. I support indexing the minimum wage. I support increasing the minimum wage and getting to $15 an hour. I had some concerns about Bernie Sanders' specific bill and how it raises the minimum wage that, frankly, got very little discussion about the impact of two provisions of it. I think we will get that done this year. And I've already been having conversations with folks in my caucus about how we can get that done this year. All right. Well, thank you very much. Sorry for the delay. It's always weird, the delay, but uh, we got it done. Uh, Senator Chris Coons, thank you very much. Really appreciate your time. And still ahead, we will talk to a frontline healthcare worker who's been traveling nonstop to COVID hotspots about the traumatic toll this past year has taken on him and his colleagues. But first, it's tonight's absolute worst. Stay with us. On the eve of the anniversary of COVID upending America, at the insistence of Republican Governor Greg Abbott, Texas officially became the largest state to fully reopen its economy and lift its mask mandate. Governor Abbott, the current readout record holder for the absolute worst, mind you, the man who brought Texas no electricity and no water during a winter storm, he took a break from xenophobic fear-mongering about immigrants at the border earlier this week to crow about his decision. After a year of going through COVID, Texans know exactly the safe practices to heed. They don't need government to tell them what to do. They know exactly what to do. Well, as of yesterday, there is no statewide mask mandate and no capacity restrictions 
for businesses of any type, restaurants, retail stores, gyms, even sports stadiums. The Texas Rangers baseball team is taking Abbott's lead, allowing 100 percent capacity for opening day at their 40,000 plus seat stadium, albeit with masks required. I mean, what's a little COVID between you and 40,000 strangers? The governor said 100 percent. You see, Abbott's order allows businesses to enforce protocols on at their own discretion. But not surprisingly, some local officials are not on board. Public health officials in Austin plan to continue requiring masks in businesses for now, in spite of the governor. And enter Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton. You remember him. The guy who went to the Supreme Court to try to overturn 10 million legal votes on behalf of that former White House guy. And who's also under investigation by the FBI for using his office to help a wealthy donor. Him. Wednesday, he threatened Austin with a 6 p.m. deadline to rescind its mask mandates or else he'd sue. Adding in an anti-science tweet, city and county leaders must not be thinking clearly. Maybe it's oxygen deprivation from quintuple masking. Austin Mayor Steve Adler gave a totally logical explanation for why he's keeping it in place. I had a lot of businesses call me. They were they were upset and they were frustrated with what the governor had done uh, because when they were enforcing masking, as they wanted to do to protect their employees, they were able to tell folks that were coming in, uh, hey, it's not us, it's the law. Well, in Austin, they still have the ability to tell the people coming into their stores uh, that the, the, the local law requires masking. Seems pretty reasonable when anti-mask bullies in your state are doing things like threatening Mexican restaurants with calling ICE on their staff for enforcing mask wearing. But Ken Paxton solidified his quest to become the absolute worst by following through on his threat. He's suing Austin, the mayor, the county judge and health authority on behalf of the state of Texas. He whined on Twitter that officials blew him off. So he's dragging them into court and he claims he'll never stop keeping Texas free and open and also full of COVID and more hospitalizations and deaths. Yay. And for that tomfoolery, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton has earned the ignominious dishonor of being tonight's absolute worst. At the core of this pandemic are those we have lost, but also those who have risked it all for 365 days to care for the sick, and the dying. If you saw what we were seeing here in the hospital, I don't think you would be taking these risks. We're seeing a lot of patients, um, they don't, they're not getting better. We're seeing them get worse and they die. We had um, another death today that the whole um, ICU took pretty hard. We've just been crying so much. It's a mass casualty incident that just won't stop. Some paid the ultimate price. More than 3,500 U.S. healthcare workers have died of COVID-19. And joining me now is Grover Street, an Air Force veteran and travel nurse who has worked on the COVID front line in hospitals across the country. Thank you so much for being here, Grover. Um, <laughs> folks heard that you were on and people are filling my text messages with excitement, uh, knowing that you would be on today. They're very happy that I'm talking with you. Can you just give up us a perspective as somebody who's been all over the country dealing with this pandemic, how you have felt over the last year? Has it been sort of like, have you just been a machine because you do have that military training, you know how to sort of buckle down? Or at any point, has there been a sort of sense of kind of drowning in this? Well, being a machine, you can't really love. So it takes a lot of love and effort to take care of these really 
we, when we take care of these patients, their families can't come in to be with them. It's only us. So we're their family. And it's even like that today where family members come in to be there. It's taken an emotional toll on a lot of health not just nurses, doctors, respiratory therapists, occupational health, uh, environmental service people. It's, it's, it's running deep through the core of, of health care. Yeah, you're making your hopefully your phone. We're going to get hopefully your audio will clean up a little bit and we I can I can still hear you. So I'm going to keep try to keep going. When you hear te- states like Texas saying take off all the restrictions, everybody go back to living your life as normal. No. And also actually outlawing mask mandates so that basically, you know, store clerks have to fight it out with customers just because they want to wear a mask and risk maybe even getting attacked. How does that make you feel as somebody who's been in the middle of this fight? It makes me feel like people aren't listening, and it makes me feel like there's a war against politics and healthcare. And people need to believe in the scientists and the doctors and people that do the studies and to say, hey, wear a mask. These are doctors and scientists telling you to do this. And when a politician tells you, do they have that experience? They're experienced in the areas that they're experiencing. But I think when it comes down to your health and saving the lives of millions and maybe even billions of people, we don't know when this is then I think people need to yeah. really listen to healthcare workers and doctors telling them to wear their mask. Yeah, uh, there's a South Dakota nurse, an ER nurse, who actually went viral with some tweets. Um, and this was in November of 2020. Her name is Jody Orth. And she wrote, uh, tweeted, I can't help but think of the COVID patients the last few days. The ones that stick out are those who still don't believe the virus is real. The ones who scream at you for doing a magic met for, for a magic medicine um, and that Joe Biden is going to ruin the USA, all while gasping for breath on 100 percent vapotherm. They tell you there must be another reason they're sick. They call you names and ask you why you have to wear all that stuff because they don't have COVID because it's not real. Did you encounter that kind of anti-COVID denialism uh, around the country? And is there pla- are there places in particular, if you encountered it, where you encountered it? Well, I, I've been mostly in the thick of it. And pe- my patients are usually intubated. And the family members that I talk to are the ones uh, that are, are, I'm talking to family members of the dead people, people that are going to die. And it, it's a little bit, it's, it's, it's deeper than what people can imagine unless you can see it through the eyes of a healthcare worker, you won't see the truth. Yeah, it is. It is. It's terrifying. And, you know, thank you for all that you've done for your service as well, but also for your service to the country in trying to get this thing to end. Uh, so Grover Street, thank you very much. Um, really appreciate you powering through the, the audio issues as well. Cheers. Thank you. All right. And we are moments away from President Biden's first primetime address as he and Vice President Kamala Harris hit the road to tout the benefits of their COVID relief package. A look back on how other administrations have led this country out of some dark, desperate times. We'll be right back. Tomorrow marks 88 years since President Franklin Delano Roosevelt delivered his first fireside chat. In the depths of the Great Depression, he laid out the crises facing this country and leveled with the American people about the road ahead. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. 
Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Confidence and courage are the essentials of success in carrying out our plan. You people must have faith. You must not be stampeded by rumors or guesses. Let us unite in banishing fear. You see, a president's words matter. They can provide the confidence needed to withstand our country's toughest challenges. There's been an absence of that leadership these past four years. But fortunately for all of us, we are witnessing its return. In a few moments, President Biden will deliver his address to the nation on this solemn anniversary of our country's fight with COVID-19. And joining me now are Valerie Jarrett, former Obama White House advisor and newly announced chair of the board of directors of the nonprofit Civic Nation and NBC News presidential historian Michael Beschloss. Thank you both for being here. Really glad to talk to you both uh, this evening. Um, it's kind of perfect. Uh, let me start by asking each of you to weigh in on what you think the import of tonight will be for the country um, and for President Biden himself. And Michael Beschloss, if you could begin. Joy, I think this is an evening that we'll remember for a long time and probably our grandchildren will be learning about because this is a moment where you see a president using what the presidency is supposed to be, as Valerie well knows. Presidency gives a president a big platform to have a lot of influence, and that gives him an opportunity, just as you were showing with FDR's fireside chat in 1933. He was explaining why the banks had failed, what he was going to do about it, and what people could expect. And at the same time, we expect our very powerful presidents to mobilize the federal government to deal with problems. What we haven't seen over the last year was a president who was doing that, you know, mobilizing every resource available to him to try to end the pandemic as quickly as possible and relieve suffering and fix the economy. Tonight, we're seeing both of those yeah. things. Yeah, and, and you got to hear that, that Atlantic accent that Americans don't right. use anymore. That I, I've been Americans restraining myself <laughs> from doing my bad FDR imitation. Uh, same. <laughs> um, you know, and Valerie, um, you know, President Obama is a person that was uniquely able in these moments to rise to that occasion. Obviously, you worked for him and he is he had that oratorical skill that could bring the country together and sort of make a moment big. Um, you also know uh, Joseph Robinette Biden very well. He's a different kind of speaker. So I, I'm fascinated to know what your expectations are of him tonight. Well, good evening, Joy, and thanks for having me come on. I think tonight will feel like a good shot in the arm, literally. I think uh, President Biden is pitch perfect at empathy, understanding what we've been through as a country this last dreadful year, the death toll, the toll on our economy, the toll on our spirits, and he will lift us up and he will chart a path forward. It was a huge victory for him to get the relief package through. Signing that into law will go right to the American people who have been struggling the most, those who have been worrying about unemployment, paying their rent, putting food on the table, sending their children back to school safely, our small businesses that have been struggling. The package will help so many, including state and local governments, something I know the president fought hard for, knowing how important that was uh, back in 2009 when the Recovery Act was passed. And so I think we have been waiting for this moment. And similarly to FDR, it gives him a chance to say, this is tough, but we are tough. We are resilient and we are going to move forward. And he has the organization around him, competent, experienced people who've already proven what they can do uh, in times of great stress and challenge. 
And so it's a great, great platform. And this is just the beginning. From here, you'll go around the country and talk about it directly to the American people. And that's important, too. Yeah, I just wish it was going to be on a train. <laughs> My sort of weird romantic notions of politics, I wish it was on a train. But I get that it can't be. Um, you know, Michael, you and I talk a lot about this. I mean, we've had so many different kinds of presidents in the United States. And they all seem to kind of define an era. And each of them sort of is an avatar for a, for a certain thing. Um, the Ad Council has put a bunch of them, like, all in one ad, with one ex uh, notable exclusion. Um, the, the just previous president, Donald Trump, is not in this ad. But here are the other uh, living presidents all sending a message about the vaccine together. It's a remarkable ad. I'm going to play a little bit of it now. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Even Jimmy Carter uh, came out and did it. I mean, does it, it which way to feel about this, uh, Michael? Donald Trump not being there with those other presidents, whoever what you think about them, you, you knew in their core that they loved the country and thought at the least that they were doing the, the right thing for the country. Would his inclusion have marred it or would it have been helpful to have him there because there's just a certain part of the country that only he can reach? Of course, we know he got his vaccine, he and his wife in secret, so there is no video of it. So I guess he couldn't have been in it. What, what, what do you think? That's the problem. I mean, you know, any other group of former presidents, you know, it would be nice, just as it is here, to see presidents of both parties with all sorts of different records and views. How on earth could we have brought Donald Trump into that commercial? Someone who did not use the federal government properly over the last year, who never bothered to give a speech explaining what was really happening and, and mourning the loss of now over half of a million of our fellow Americans. And so the result is that, you know, the former President's Club does not admit just anyone. And I think Donald Trump, by his behavior, is essentially exempting him. It's a little bit like what President Biden said about giving intelligence briefings to Trump. Most pre uh, pre former presidents get them, as Valerie knows. How can you give it to Donald Trump? You can't be sure that he wouldn't take that secret information and sell it to a hostile foreign power. It's, a, it's such a sad statement, really, um, to have a living former president, you know, that is just sort of not useful. You know, and, and yep. Valerie, I wonder for you, is, is you know, Biden, is, his empathy is like his superpower. I think other people, I won't take credit for that quote. Do you think that because he's that guy, you know, he would easily fit in with these other guys. You could put him in a group with them and he'd be like high-fiving them once we can high-five again and doing all that. Do you think that his particular empathy gives him a chance to maybe reach those unreachable Trump people because the vaccine is just so important to all of us. Absolutely. And I think he will be looking for trusted messengers um, all around the country who can help him deliver that message. It's not all on him to do it. But he made it very clear in the campaign, and he's been true to his word, that he's going to reach out because he considers himself the president of all America. And I think I'll tell you, during the eight years that I had the honor of serving in President Obama's administration, there wasn't a single time we called a former president, regardless of party, where they didn't say, what can we do for the country? Because of love of country. And so I think that uh, President Biden 
shares that love of country and it is contagious and he will use every platform possible to communicate that, including the huge bully pulpit that he has during primetime tonight. I think that every American who yeah. tunes in uh, last question. feels he's speaking to them. Indeed. Last question to you, Michael. Um, the former acting defense secretary, Chris Miller, um, said that Trump is responsible for the one. This is a completely different subject of the for the January 6th insurrection. Let me play it real quick if we have time. Do you think the president was responsible for what happened on the 6th? I don't know, but it seems cause and effect. Yeah. The question is, would anybody have marched on the Capitol and overrun the Capitol without the president's speech? I think it's pretty much definitive that wouldn't have happened. Michael Beschloss, I feel like I ask you this every time I'm with you. Have you ever seen anything like this in your life of, of an acting defense secretary saying the president was responsible for an insurrection? He's just saying what we know to be the truth. Donald Trump tried to take away our democracy on the 6th of January. He tried to incite an insurrection, an attack on Congress and the Capitol that could have yeah. killed members of Congress, led to a hostage crisis, and maybe he hoped suspended Joe Biden's inauguration. There is nothing yeah, a president can do that's worse than that. Yeah, nothing that's worse than that. Valerie Jarrett, Michael Beschloss. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. That's tonight's readout. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app.